Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. This is episode number 121. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, bless us, Lord, during this time as we sit once again and gather around your name, as we rally around the banner of Messiah Yeshua, our Lord and our King. Thank you for this opportunity to share with one another, to bless one another, to connect across the miles using this uh, medium known as the Internet. I pray that you'll bless those who are with me tonight in the live class, keep them safe, keep them um uh, close to you, uh, keep us in a place where we are hungry for your word and filled with your spirit, walking in your commandments and turning from sin, walking in forgiveness of one another. Um, bless those who are watching the YouTube video after the fact. Continue to take us and carry us along through these difficult times. Give us a hope that's beyond hope. Help us to see through your eyes that despite all the confusion, the, 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 um, and the uh, um, um, the uneasiness around us, um, uh, and all the fear and the trepidation, Lord, you are in control, and we will continue to look to you as our Father and as our Provider. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory, Bishim Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week. Just wanted to keep my uh, prayer kind of short and to the point. I'm so blessed to be a part of um, your weekly. Uh, spiritual nutrition, if you want to call it that, um, where I'm able to come to you week after week live through these uh, internet studies. If you're watching this YouTube video after the fact, let me just let you know that this is live internet studies. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, and I'm a tour teacher at a congregation in Thornton, Colorado, as I bring my website up here at www.graftedin.com. You're invited to join us in live or streaming. Either way, we're doing both these days. Just keep in mind that we're following all of the, the safety guidelines that are being um, imposed upon churches these days, mask wearing, hand washing, uh, social distancing, and things like that. But go to our website and get all the details if you'd like to contact us or, or come on out to our congregation. Otherwise, just feel free to watch our streaming services. As I've, you can see on my screen right now, I've got the... Um, uh, thumbnail for the, uh, the YouTube videos that you can uh, interact with on that level. Otherwise, um, I've got my own Torah teaching website at tetzetorah.com. That's spelled T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H dot 
com and from the homepage or any page really there's a cluster link of resources that you can um, connect to find um, Torah related topics uh, uh, Jewish and Gentile related topics weekly Torah portion commentaries iTunes podcasts YouTube videos questions and answers um, I've got a Galatians commentary, a Hebrews commentary, and I'm working on a Romans 14 commentary. It's just some other resources that um, uh, you can avail yourself of. All of it's for free. These are the live internet studies, and I join you. Let me just scroll down to the uh, uh, details. I join you week after week. This, As I mentioned, this is episode number 121. Our recording date or meeting date for the recording uh, is December 26, 2020. So by the time you watch this, it might even be... 2021. It depends on how long it takes me for me to upload the finished copy to YouTube. But we meet each Saturday evening from 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. And that's U.S. date and time in case you're uh, joining us from somewhere else around the world. For instance, on my side of the world, it's actually already Sunday morning, even though I'm meeting with the crowd in the internet uh, in the live studies chat, uh, room. Uh, and I think it's Saturday night on their side of the world. But come on out and join us for the live studies. If you like to interact with people uh, and talk about different Bible topics and things like that, we go back and forth after the live study. Uh, I don't record that part; it doesn't get uploaded anywhere. So if, if that's your, um, if that's what you like to interact with, well, then, then you got to join us live. Um, we typically go for two segments, and I might be changing this up. Come next year, I might um, change the format a little bit. I'm going to chat with my um, uh, my uh, group uh, uh, room um, members and ask them what they think about changing the format a little bit. But for now, we've got an hour-long study that's broken up into two segments. The 30-minute segment is given over to the Romans 14 Unplugged study, Feasts and Fasts and Food. Oh my, we're in part 39. And then for um, segment two, it's given over to the Exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity topic. We're in paper two of three papers, pun intended there, Yahweh and Yeshua part 56. And we'll just keep going until we finish through all the material, and then we'll jump into paper three, which is going to be primarily on the Holy Spirit. We've got a featured YouTube video tonight uh, entitled John 1334 Love one another. So I hope you can stick around for all of the uh, the parts of the show. Briefly, uh, what you're going to need if you want to join us uh, for the live studies, then get access to Skype, uh, which is free to install on your computer. Um, you will need this group Skype link, uh, and you can get that from me. The easiest way to get it is to send me an email. And if you're on my website at Tete Torah, you can see there's a little link right there that says send me an email, right? there. Otherwise, the easiest way to do it, as I always mention, is just drop all the way down to the bottom of my website in that black footer section where it says Weekly Parasha Archives. And as I zoom in right now, you can see there's a little button right there that looks like an email. So click that and it'll send me an email and you can tell me that you want to join the live, uh, live Skype classes and that you need the Skype link and I'll be more than happy to send it to you. And then um, I always uh, mention since we're down on this part of the page, if God is blessing you to be a blessing to other people financially, then take notice that there's a little yellow donate button down at the bottom of my page. And that, that gives you an opportunity to reach out and share with me um, financially. And uh, to be honest with you, I'm in a place where I could really use it. Uh, still looking for a job, but I know that God is going to provide for me no matter what. But what's really, really, really wonderful is when God uses people like you 
to bless people like me. And that's entirely biblical. It's Yeshua that tells us that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Paul quoting Yeshua there. And so it's so wonderful to be in a place where I'm watching God work miracles before my very eyes as people like you who are watching this YouTube video, listening to this podcast, are actually helping support me with a little bit here and a little bit there. I like to think of it as uh, a miracle of loaves and fishes, and that's how I'm surviving right now during this difficult pandemic time. I don't think it'll be forever like this, and I pray that it won't, honestly. But for the time being, then a miracle is happening right before my very eyes. So bless you all for being a blessing to me. All right, let's go on with the rest of the show. Let's jump right into the um, liturgy right now. I'm trying to accelerate the earlier parts of the show and get right into the teachings. So I won't wax too long on the liturgy. But I got a request from one of my um, uh, readers, sent me an email and said, um, Torah teacher Ariel, can you read the Shema in its entirety. Since we had Rabbi Eduardo, who joined us during our Hanukkah study, he read the, um, the what we what we call part one of three parts of the Shema passages for our liturgy. And so I said, sure, I'll read the rest of them. So without further delay, let me turn to, there are three passages that Judaism has designated as the Shema, which the word Shema means here. And um, it's a set of passages that talks about the um, the, the the oneness of God or the absoluteness that God is the only God that we're going to serve and love and keep his commandments. And then there are other passages that talk about the blessings that entail um, uh, obedience. And then finally, a passage that brings in the commandment to attach fringe, fringes or tassels to our garments. So those are the three parts. The first one is in Deuteronomy 6, and I'll read that. And then the second one is in Deuteronomy 11, I'll read that one. And then the third one is in Numbers chapter 15. And I'll read that one. Those are the three parts of the Shema. So per request, let me just drop down. This will take a little bit longer, but I'll try not to uh, delay everything. Uh, delay everything. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse uh, 4. Right there, for those of you who are with me in the live class and can see this, or if you're watching the YouTube video, then you'll notice that all the, the extra the verses will pop out of the screen at you as I do in the post-production. But for those of you who are with me in the, in the live class, just watch the screen. All right, I'll read all the English on the left, and then I'll go back and read all the Hebrew on the right, okay? Uh, ESV, English on the right. On the left, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Again, the word here, the very first word, is the word Shema. And um, that's where we get the name of this particular uh, prayer or this liturgy. And it's also the name of my study that we've been going through, this, you know, exploring the Shema, meaning talking about the idea of God being one and what does that mean to Judaism? Is he the only one? Is he the only God? Is he the only God among many gods? Is he the only true God among many false gods? Uh, <clears throat> and then later on, it became known as a discussion about the nature of God. It didn't really start out that way, but it turned into that later on in Judaism. All right, a little background for you. Uh, verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Verse 6, right there. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Verse 9, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And that's the first part of the Shema, verses 4 through 9. The second part of the Shema picks up in Deuteronomy chapter 11, and we drop down to verse 13. 
That's where it starts. And we're going to go 13 through... I'm sorry. I think that would be good. You should teach them diligently. Give me a moment here. <clears throat> Do I start in verse 13? Yes, let's go 13 through um, 20, I think. No. Let's go 13 through 21. We'll stop at 21. Okay, so this will be a little bit longer. Starting right there. Left side of the screen. Uh, Deuteronomy 11, 13. And, and if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Now we end up with the why do we need to obey God's commandments. From Israel's perspective, it was tied to getting into the land and staying safely in the land. There's a little bit more involved today, but initially that's the, 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 the gist of how the commandments were um, meted out as far as reward is concerned. Uh, starting in verse 14, uh, God says, He will give you the rain for your land and its seasons, the early rain, the later rain, the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. Verse 15, And he will give grass in your field, fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. So notice, God is telling Israel, I'm going to bless you if you keep my commandments. I'm going to bless you. Your life will be full. Um, like Yeshua said, that you might have life and life more abundantly. Um, you'll live, right? I won't kill you. You won't die. I'll, I'll protect you from your enemies. And at the same time, I will bless you and your livestock and your families and your children and the land around you. And generally speaking, there's a principle known as reward uh, um, of um, uh, obedience is, is um, uh, rewarded by blessing. So, blessing follows obedience. That's the general principle that's going on here. Verse um, 15, and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock and you shall eat and be full. Verse 16, take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Verse 17, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the, land, the good land that the Lord has given you. Notice the converse is true. God does not reward disobedience. At least he doesn't reward it positively. God does not bless wickedness of the heart, nor does he bless uh, disobedience of the hand. In other words, what you set your heart to do, what your hand actually follows, uh, what your feet actually follow, what's in your heart, God uh, punishes. So, verse 18, you shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart. Notice God's asking for a heart change. <laughs> is asking for their will and their volition in the matter. And in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand that they be as frontless between your eyes. By the way, it's amazing to me that as we read these verses, <clears throat> that many more uh, church-going people, Christians, Gentile Christians, generally speaking, aren't aware that God was never just God was never commanding some sort of um, legalistic performance in in a, in a routine fashion where you just do commandments kind of mindlessly as robots, or you just do them kind of um, you know uh, uh, without caring for God and loving your neighbor and anything like that. God was always asking for heartfelt and heart motivated uh, commandment keeping. It's it's all throughout the Torah, but we, we just need to stop and read it. Verse 18, therefore lay these words of mine on your heart and in your soul. God was, I mean, this is a kind of a New Testament feature is the point I'm trying to bring up as I stop and interject in the middle of my liturgy. Sorry about that. Verse um, 19, you shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking, by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. Verse 20, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now it sounds uh, similar to the previous passage that we read earlier. 
scroll down to verse 21, <clears throat> that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. There's the kind of the general grandfather blessing that's attached to keeping the commandments. It's tied to your safe, you're getting into the land and your safety and protection in the land and blessing while you're there. And verse 22, the last one that I'll read, is it verse 22? No, it's 21. We'll stop right there. That your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. All right, so let's go back and um, no, I'm gonna. I think I'll read all of the English first, then I'll go back and read all of the Hebrew. Uh, Numbers 15, uh, scrolling down to verse, starting in verse. Let me find it here. There we go. Starting in verse 37. This is a passage about attaching fringes to your garments. For those of you who aren't aware, these look like little strings uh, for Orthodox Jews or non-Messianic Jews, or for some Messianic Jews as well. They're typically all white, and they're usually about, I don't know, they're probably anywhere from six inches or longer, six inches to eight inches long, and they're, they'll show up on an Orthodox uh, Jewish person's, typically a male, Orthodox Jewish person's um, either like near the vest, near his waist. Uh, sometimes they're attached. They're definitely attached to a prayer shawl, whether long or a short one. Um, but uh, uh, Messianic Jews will typically attach, attach a thread of blue because we're going to read about the blue here. Uh, the Orthodox who don't put the blue, they have their reasons why, and we'll talk about that on a different study. But for now, let's just read the passage. Numbers chapter 15, starting in verse 37. We'll read all the way down through the end of the... Um, end of the passage, which is verse 41. So it's a kind of a short read. Verse 37, the Lord said to Moses, verse 38, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. Verse 39, and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. Verse 40, so you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. Verse 41, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So again, this is a very practical commandment that can be done by any Israelite. It's not something that's reserved for kings or priests or anything like that. All right, let's go back and read through the Hebrew uh, of those same passages, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. We're on that side of the page for those of you who are following along with me. <clears throat> uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4, in the Hebrew says, Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohim Adonai Echad. Verse 5 says, Va'ahavta et Adonai Elohecha v'cholavavcha uv'chonafshcha v'chomodecha. Verse 6 says, Verse 7 says, Verse 8 says, Verse 9 says, and now let's jump over to Deuteronomy chapter 11 and start in verse, what I say, start in verse 13 and read down to verse 21, starting right there. Uh, the Hebrew says of verse 13, 
Verse 14 says, Verse 15 says, Verse 16 says, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Verse 18 says, Yeah, I think that is where I want to stop. All right, let's jump over to Numbers chapter 15. Read those Hebrew uh, word verses as well. Starting in verse, yeah, I was right now. Starting in verse 37, right there. Uh, the Hebrew says, Vayumer Adonai el Moshe lemor. Verse 38, Daber el Bene Israel, va amarata alehim, va asu lehim, tzitzit al kanfe, vigdehim le dorotam vnatnu, al tzitzit han ha kanaf patil te chelet. Verse 39 says, Vahaya lachem. Letzitzit uritem oto uskaratem et kol mitzvot adonai vaasitem otam velotaturu achay lavavchem vaachay einechem asher atem zunim achrehem. Verse 40 says, Lemaan tiskru vaasitem et kol mitzvotai vihitem kadoshim le elohechem. And verse 41. Says, Ani Adonai Elohechem, Asher Hutseti etchem me eretz mitzraim, lichot lechem, le Elohim, Ani Adonai Elohechem. And that'll be the liturgy for the Hebrew section. Let's jump real quick over to Romans. I'm not going to read all, um, what is I think last week I read verse 1 all the way down through verse, um, where did I stop, Agardia? But uh, verse, I think verse um, 13. Instead, I'll just read a 10, 11, 12, 13. Just those short, uh, that short read tonight. Um, because that's all we're going to really be dealing with is talk. We're going to continue talking about the brother. So we'll start right there. ESV, Romans chapter 14. Left side of the page, verse 10 says, Paul says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. 
verse 11 says, For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Verse 12, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And then verse 13, the final one for tonight. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And we're going to be talking about the brother and how it's related to who is the weak one, the weak in faith person in Romans 14.1. And we'll talk about this tonight and probably tomorrow. And then I, I'm sorry, tomorrow, next week. And then I think I'll conclude and move on to the next section in the study about um, something about uh, um, uh, uh, nothing is the unclean in of itself, so it'll be a, a kind of talking about kosher and diet and things like that. All right, let's go back and read the Greek over on the right side of the page, starting over there. This is SBLG and T version of the Greek. It says, uh, verse 10, Su de ti krines ton adelfon su, ekai su ti exutanes ton adelfon su, pantes gar para... Um, and I talked about how last week that there's a variant in the Greek, uh, the final phrase there, for we all stand before the judgment seat of God, which is what that means, there's a variant, and we'll talk about that maybe tonight, how that um, the variant shows the judgment seat of Christ, and so it kind of bears relevance to our discussion if the brother is perhaps not only Christians, but perhaps my brother is broad enough to include unbelieving Jews, well, then how could an unbelieving Jew stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Wouldn't he just stand before the judgment seat of God? Something like that effect. All right, we'll look at that a little bit later. All right, dropping down to verse 11 for the liturgy. Uh, pick up the reading right there. The Greek says, Pan ganu kai pasa glosa exa mala gesetai to theo. Verse 12 says, Ara un hekastas himon peri hiautu lagan dose to theo. And verse 13 says, Meketi un alelus krinomen ala tuta krinata malanto me tithenai praskama to adelfo e skandalon. And that'll be the liturgy for the Hebrew and the Greek. Let's turn now real quick to the short little video. Let's watch that. You guys ready? Here we go. Welcome to A Minute or Two with the Word. I'm your host, Torah teacher Ariel, where every week or so we take a look at a relevant passage of Scripture together as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. Around the middle of this month of February, the topic of love was in the air, and so I'd like to talk about a famous love passage from the Bible this week. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. That's John 13:34, as found in the NIV. Love one another. Yeshua called this a new commandment. That's kind of peculiar, isn't it? Hasn't the Torah always commanded us to love one another? Absolutely. Take a look into the book of Leviticus with me. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19.18, the last part of the verse from the NIV. The noticeable contrast in the Peshat, the simple view, the raw data, here is that love is shown to be compared with yourself, whereas Yeshua compared love with as I loved you. In Yeshua's quote, the shift in emphasis has moved from myself to the Messiah. 
By Yeshua emphasizing, as I have loved you, he was firstly giving us a personal example of what true love should look like. Secondly, he was reinforcing the love that the Father already had and has demonstrated for his own people by sending his Son to die for all humanity. Love is what ties all the covenants together, and love has always been the desired response of the Father. Avraham clearly loved God, Moshe clearly loved God, and David clearly loved God. Yeshua would not come and teach anything less than what has already been taught in his Father's Torah, love. that'll do it for the video for tonight. As always, all of the videos are available on my YouTube channel. Go to www.youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tetze Torah Ministries. And from there, you can um, get access to all of the videos that you see on my screen right now. I've got my uh, YouTube uh, channel pulled up. And these are the videos in the order that I upload them. I'm sorry, in the order of the most recent to uh, the, the latest. But just take notice that there are playlists, and I've got quite a few different playlists that I've put together for you. Uh, tour portion playlist, um, uh, highlights from my t tour portions. These are kind of short. You can watch them like in three to five minutes. Hebrews Unplugged playlist, the Exploring the Shema playlist here. And then I've got all the weekly tour portion playlists as well. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Minute or Two with Word, like the video we just watched is from this particular playlist. And then uh, I've got a What's on Paul's Mind, largely my Galatians study playlist, my question and answers playlist, uh, live internet studies, that's all in one playlist there. And then Feasts of the Lord, Mikra Kodesh series, and then finally Tor Observant Shomer Mitzvot series. Take advantage of all the videos that I've got there. They're there for, for you to enjoy, for free, to share, to upload, to um comment on. As I always mention, when you're at, uh, watching a YouTube video of mine, four things you use at least. Number one, subscribe to my YouTube channel and join the gang, right? We're one big happy family and we'd love to, to have you join as well. Number two, hit the little bell for notifications. That'll send notifications to your um, smartphone or tablet device. I don't think it sends it to your email, but if you're logged into a YouTube, I'm sorry, to a, um, a a Google account, and um, then it'll also send you uh, uh, notifications through that as well. Uh, number three, um, hit the little like button. If you like what you're watching, hit the little thumbs up. If you don't like what you're watching, hit the thumbs down. That's fine as well. But then number four, um, share the, con the, the content with other people. Um, I'm going to add a fifth one one of these days where I'd like you to uh, ask you to comment on my videos as well. I like comment. I like um, comments, and um, I'm fine with people disagreeing with you. I'd rather you agree with me, but hey, if you disagree, tell me why. I'm fine with that as well. All right, let's turn now to Romans 14 Unplugged, Feasts and Fasts and Food. Oh my. All right. As you can tell from the title of my study, and we've been, this is an ongoing series. We'll just keep going until I finish through my notes. Um, as you can tell by the title, I don't believe that the chapter that Paul wrote is is designed to be interpreted the way it's traditionally understood in most Christian circles. That's not to say I don't think that Paul was concerned about um, mending relationships and and uh, between two people groups who had differences of opinions on certain matters. 
um, like many Christian groups would teach you if you heard of your average sermon on this particular chapter. Um, to be sure, that is one of the primary thrusts of the instructions given in Romans 14. We should not judge one another despite our differences of opinions on certain matters. We certainly can't be in a place where we're looking down on one another because we're all one body. But what I'm trying to do as I'm engaging with you all in, during these studies is to introduce you to this idea that, uh, and this is I'm telling you this right up front so you can kind of follow along with the study. As I in, interact with the, with the passage here, I'll try not to make this too long, Paul was writing from within Jewish subgroups, not from outside of it. It's anachronistic to read back into the text, Paul speaking to church groups, Gentile Christians and Jews, who'd already broken away from Judaism and were forming their own Christian Gentile groups that were uh, other than uh, related to Judaism or had no connection to the Jewish synagogues or anything, Jewish authority or anything like that. But as we allow history to speak to us more accurately, it's more likely, and there are lots of clues in the text, it's more likely that the subgroups that Paul was writing to were still very much attached to and familiar with and interacting with Jewish synagogal communities, uh, lots of unsaved Jews, if you want to call them that, using the label non-Christian Jews is the term I've been using, or non-Messianic Jews. And so we had kind of um, this mix, this social experiment, as you were, going on in the first century, where largely religious communities in Paul's day were composed, comprised, composed of, um, of synagogue Jews, religious Jews, but along come Gentiles interested in Judaism, along with Jews who are embracing Jesus as the Messiah, so they became Messianic Jews, but all in all, the point is, the, the, the greater, larger, umbrella, religious faith community in Paul's day was still religious Judaism, or the Judaisms, if you want to really give them a plural, based on the denominational aspect. As you went from place to place, you have some kind of denominational differences. That's why I use the phrase Judaisms, plural. But the point being is, they were connected to one another more closely than we don't often always think. And this causes us to re-look at rethink the way we read the passage as it applied to them first and then as we can make some practical application today even though now we've already split we the church have split basically from the synagogue and they the synagogue have split from us and so the two are kind of somewhat mutually exclusive hopefully not always mutually hostile or you know uh, uh, at, at odds with one another but but particularly divided when it comes to our loyalties and uh, our faith aspect and things like that. So that's the challenge that we have to work with. So on that note, in my commentary, we're in the section uh, asking the question, uh, looking at verses 10 through 13, which is why I read them in the liturgy. Who is the brother? Who is the brother? And I'll just tell you right up front, from a cursory glance and from reading through Christian commentaries, your average Christian commentary is going to tell you that the word brother is found throughout the apostolic scriptures as primarily a reference to a believer in Jesus. And I actually agree with that. So don't get me wrong. Don't, don't make me say something I'm not saying. The brother in the apostolic scriptures, the New Testament, is typically your brother Christian. Whether you're Jew and Gentile, that doesn't matter. But the fact that you are... Um, 
attaching yourself to a, a messianic community, whether it's a home church, a synagogue group, a messianic group, wherever. But the fact that you are saying that I am part of the chosen when it comes to believing in Jesus, I have laid hold of faith in Messiah, and I believe in the whole promise of the Spirit and, and things like that. I am a brother with the, the others. So that's primarily. However, however, here's the challenge. If we are correct that the groups in Paul's day were, when it came comes to the faith communities, were broad enough to understand that the synagogue community, which was largely made up of unbelieving Jews, was the original use uh, uh, users of this phrase brother, brother Jew or brother Israelite, and brother covenant member, then from Paul's perspective, because he is, he sees that God is not done with with national Israel yet, he understands that God has a plan for national Israel, uh, all the while bringing Gentiles into the covenant relationship through his son Yeshua, then for Paul, at times, brother can be broad enough, I believe, to include Jews and Gentiles, whether um, believing and unbelieving, or unbelieving when it comes to Messiah, sorry about that, but definitely brother covenant members. So that's the real kicker. So the challenge is this, don't see brother as exclusively relating to Jews and Gentiles who lay uh, uh, claim to Jesus as Messiah. It could also mean brother covenant members. So if I were a Gentile Christian in Paul's day, and Paul said, um, look at your brother over there, do you pray for him? And if Paul's pointing to an unbelieving Jew, I would understand that Paul's using this word brother to mean brother covenant member, not brother believer in Jesus. Even though I'm a Gentile believer in Jesus, I'm a Christian, but my brother Jew, he's a brother covenant member because we both have the same covenant relationship to God in the sense that we both believe that God is the only true God there is. We don't believe in false gods and pagan gods and idolatrous gods and things like that. So we have the same loyalty to God, uh, faithfulness to God. And we both uh, believe in the same set of scriptures, right? Remember, the only inspired scriptures in Paul's day was the Old Testament. That's not. There wasn't any New Testament just yet. Paul was pinning those, right? So, so the, the, we have to have a, a covenant connection to the scriptures of Israel. And at the same time, we also understand that we have a covenant connection to um, uh, to one another via the promises that God is giving to His people, the elect. So, Israel is the elect. But the remnant of Israel, the Christians, the Gentiles that are being brought in and grafted in and, and attached to Israel, are also the elect. They're the elect within the elect. They're Israel within Israel, the smaller Israel within a larger Israel. And so the smaller brother would be the Christians. The larger brother, or the, the, you know, the, the larger definition, would be the, the unbelieving Jews. People who are not included in the brother would be the world at large who's not uh, claiming faith in God and loyalty to God's ways and covenant uh, membership or anything. So they're outside of covenant membership because they haven't um, uh, accepted God as their own God at all. So they're outside of brotherhood altogether, they're outside of covenant membership. So we're talking about covenant brothers. So with that, let me finish reading through, oh, I'm sorry, before I look at, look at that, um, look at Romans 14. Uh, remember I said there was a variant in the Greek. Uh, Romans 14, starting in, ver- I think it's verse uh, 13. Let me drop down and show you what I'm talking about, why it bears relevance for this particular study. Uh, let's see. I'm sorry. It is verse... Uh, where did I see it? Okay, here it is. It's verse 10. All right. 
So for those of you with me in the live class, you can see I've got this um, uh, tool pulled up from uh, BibleHub.com. And it's the interlinear, so we can see all of the morphology, which means all of the Greek and the parts of speech and the Strong's numbers and the English and things like that. We've got the Greek script right there and the English below it. And so the Greek says, Su de te... Su de ti crines tana delfonsu, e kai su ti exutanes tana delfonsu. Pontes gutter paras de samatha to bema ti tu theu. And as I mentioned during my liturgy, the last uh, five Greek words, paras de samatha to. I'm sorry, let me start with uh, the last uh, right here. One, two, three, four, five, six. Last seven Greek words. So we have pantes all, gar for, paras de samatha will stand before. To the bemati, let me scroll up a little bit there. Um, uh, bemati, judgment seat. You probably heard your pastor say bema seat. This is where he gets this from. Bema seat is rooted right in the Greek word bema. So bemati, judgment seat to uh, the, the the genitive of theu, God also genitive. So um, God's judgment seat is how we would kind of clean it up if we were trying to show possessive. So bemati to theu. The variant, if I jump over to this uh, part of the um, tool, can be seen in these various Greek versions. So we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight different Greek versions pulled up for us on the screen right now. Um, just from top to bottom, we've got the 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 um, the Nestle 1904. Uh, we've got the Westcott and Hort in 1881. We've got the Westcott and Hort NA27 and UBS4 variants. We've got the Byzant the RP Byzantine Majority Text 2005. Down near the bottom, we've got the Greek Orthodox Church, the Tischendorf 8th edition, the Scrivener's Textus Receptus from 1894, and then we've got the Stephanus Textus Receptus from 1550. So these are some different text textual versions that we can look at, and I'm trying to make this really quick because I don't want to bog you down on all the Greek grammar. But uh, the only thing I want you to see is just the very last, even if you can't read Greek, you can see the differences. I'm going to highlight the passage. So the first one, to bemati tu theu, the judgment seat of God. Second one, also, to uh, uh, bemati tu theu. Uh, to bemati tu theu, the third one. But now look at the fourth one. To bemati tu Christu, judgment seat of Christ. Once again, also in the the sixth one, to bemati tu Christu. And then the seventh one, to bemati tu theu again. Uh, to bemati tu, tu Christu. And then once again, to bemati tu Christu. So the bottom line is the last word is the word you're looking for. We got theu, theu, theu. That's God, God, God. Then we have Christu, that's Christ. Then we have Christu, Christ again. Then we have theu, God, Christu, Christ. Christ do Christ. What's the big deal? If we drop a little bit further down, um, we'll see from some of these parallel versions that the um, NASB, which follows the um, the the the, um, uh, the 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 Greek text that is older in date but newer by the at the time that we discovered it, it follows uh, saying judgment seat of God. That's what we might call the minority text. It's the smaller amount of textual family that we can work from. The majority text, or the Textus Receptus, the one that's in use by the KJV, which from a historical point of view, we found them first, we discovered them in history first, but chronologically, as for, as for when they were written, they're older than the um, 
they're I'm sorry, they're newer than the, uh, the 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 one that's used by the NESB. So this one says judgment seat of Christ, and that's why we have the difference: theu for God, Christos for Christ. And then um, uh, if you look at the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge for these, these are just kind of references that that use some similar language. If we look at uh, this one right here, First um, Corinthians. Uh, I'm sorry, not First Corinthians. Uh, this one right here, Second Corinthians, uh, five ten says, "For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ." And the Greek there has um, um, "bemati tu Christo." Christo. So it's this statement that caused people, such as um, perhaps the translators, to switch over to Christ here, because maybe the copyist, maybe the the the, the scribes, changed it in in the majority text version. We don't know. In other words, which one's the original? Which one did Paul write? Did he write Theu or did he write Christu? And does it matter? Okay, here's why I'm even bringing it up. From a theological perspective, if the brother is a Christian, right, Jews and Gentiles, and they're both Christians, and there are no unbelieving Jews in 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 within the purview of our particular uh, commentary at all, then why would Paul speak of unbelieving Jews standing before the judgment seat of Christ? Right? Um, some, some might ask that question. But if we broaden the, um, if, if we say that the, what Paul wrote was originally the judgment seat of God, and whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you're definitely going to stand behind, by, by the, um, in front of the judgment seat of God. God is going to judge you, like we read about if we look at the uh, Romans 14. We start in verse um, uh, 10 and keep going. We'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. And they says, as it's written, every, every knee will bow, every tongue will bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Again, so then each of us will give an account of himself. Notice the context of the peaceful people giving the account is to God and not to Christ. And again, the Greek supports that, the-o, the-o, and the-u. It's God, God, God. So it seems to be that probably Paul did originally write God. This would then broaden the understanding of, of a brother covenant member, even though he's an unbeliever, not a Christian, standing before God's judgment seat versus Christians standing only before the judgment seat of the Messiah, as opposed to standing before um, God's judgment seat uh for all humanity. We could talk about that a little bit later. That Those are some of the implications perhaps behind uh, looking at this as standing before the judgment seat of God instead of standing before the judgment seat of Messiah or something to that effect. So, um, and we, as I mentioned, I don't want to get deep into that right now, but that's perhaps some of the implications behind maybe the differences between the variations, uh, you know, which one's the, the accurate. Who knows? Paul really wrote judgment seat of Christ, and maybe then brother does really mean only Christians. Um, uh, and we can talk about that in time. But for now, what I want to do is um, this week and next week, as I mentioned, we'll try and finish up on this section, uh, on this part of my commentary, Who's the Brother? So with it, two weeks from now, we can start jumping into what exactly does nothing is unclean in itself imply. Let's finish reading Mark Nanos. Uh, Nanos. Um, he wrote a, a, a paper called uh, Romans to the Churches of the Synagogues of Rome. And this is giving us the background behind perhaps the, the viewpoint that I'm holding with is that the the subgroups in in, in Paul's within Paul's writing in the first century were still um, very much actively interacting with synagogue communities to the point that it was not unusual to find believing Jews and unbelieving Jews in the same community, along with believing Gentiles and unbelieving Gentiles in the same crowd. The commonality between, behind all of them, and this is a careful distinction I need to make, is that they were all vying for covenant membership 
within the scope of God's promises and protection. So we're not, we're excluding pagans, we're excluding um, just your average secular, you know, Jew or Gentile who didn't give a, a hoot about God or his promises or the Bible or, or Israel or the Messiah or the Spirit or any of that like we have today. We're talking about um, covenant membership to the to the to the um, point that it outlined um, interest from Jews and Gentiles who were brought into the the the, the um, scope of dealing with God on a covenant level. So we're talking about people who join themselves to Israel who were outside of Israel, but we're definitely talking about people who were within Israel already within covenant boundaries. That's the point I'm trying to bring up and the distinction I need to make. So with that in mind, um, let's scroll down and read through this last. Uh, paragraph. I finished. I read part of this last week, and we'll finish it tonight. At least this particular part. So we're going to start right there. All right. This is uh, Mark uh, Nanus. He says the traditional position, speaking of Christian theology and the way your average Christian reads through this part of the Bible. Uh, and, and Paul. The traditional position is generally presented in binary this or that theological terms, thus Christ or Torah, often labeled law. And when he says Christ or Torah, he's really meaning Christ versus Torah or Christ versus law. This is really the binary or the bifurcation or the, the, the um, what's the word I'm looking for? The dichotomy that is set up in your average Gentile Christian uh, uh, Bible setting is that Christ is opposite of the law. So that's what I mean by Christ or Torah or Christ versus law, Christ versus Torah. So if you ask your average pastor, are you under the law of Christ or are you under the law of Moses? Almost across the board, you're going to get the answer being, I'm under the law of Christ. I'm not under the law of Moses, meaning I'm not obligated to keep the law or things like that. But I am all obligated to keep the, 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 the law of Christ because Paul teaches that we're under the Christ, under the law of Christ. So we have this this um, a, bi, a, a binary or dichotomy or a, a, a set at odds one another, this versus that uh, contest between these terms. So listen to Mark uh, Nanos explain this. Christ versus the law concluding that Christ replaced Torah, making the latter obsolete for guiding life among Christ followers, or that is how it should be, uh, i.e. traditional Paulinism is defined based on a law-free gospel. This is what, uh, again, your average uh, Christian commentary or seminary is going to teach you. He continues, within a few centuries, that position, you know, about was Paul teaching a law-free gospel, it actually was made official policy for Christendom. That is to say, no Christians, even former Jews who converted to Christianity, were permitted to attend Jewish meetings or practice Jewish rites or ways of life. And this was apparently the view of some, although by no means all, Christ-following non-Jews already in the early 2nd century, e.g. Ignatius of Antioch. So the point is, go back and look at your history, and you'll find that essentially the Gentile Christian church made a concerted break away from Judaism as a whole and away from law-keeping and identifying as a group that was related to Judaism and law-keeping. And basically, Gentile Christianity formed their own identity, separate and distinct from Judaism and the separate and distinct from law keeping, and uh, uh, it was 
you know, solidified in the, in the centuries following the first century. So second, third, fourth, fifth centuries till we get to where we are today, where your average Gentile Christian is, is, um, confident that they have really no connection to Israel or to Judaism or to the law of Moses. And that's just the way we're taught. And so that's what we're looking at. We just need to be kind of aware of that. I'm not trying to slam people for this position. I disagree with it, right? But I'm not trying to slam you if that's the way you were raised and the way you were taught. Um, you know, we can't help teaching this just been passed along from one generation to the other. What we can do is become better informed ourselves and we go back and read through the scriptures and begin to pray about uh as gentile christians am i truly separated from israel am i really disconnected from the covenant people of god am i really unattached to the law of moses lord help me understand my relationship to these particular uh topics so let's keep reading here as i scroll down on the next page uh, Mark Nanos continues, following from these premises, the primary problems Paul addressed in Rome are usually, again, this is your, your popular view of Paul, they're usually understood to have risen from the failure of some within the Christ-following community. Notice he doesn't say Christians, because that's again, is also anachronistic. Paul didn't use the word Christian in any of his letters. Does that mean he wasn't writing to Christians? No. Of course he understood that they were Christians. I'm just saying that from a text point perspective, he didn't use that term Christian, but he understood believer in Messiah. So uh, Mark Nanos is simply trying to alert us to the idea that maybe this term Christian has this kind of baggage attached to it. From our perspective, it conjures up this idea of someone who's disconnected from Judaism, someone who's disconnected from the Torah. And so the term Christian is often used in that way. Oh, I'm not a, I'm not a Jew. I'm a Christian. I don't follow the law of Moses. I follow the law of Christ because I'm a Christian. I'm a New Testament Christian or something to that effect. But what we need to be aware of is that Paul was a Jew and he was a Torah follower. And yet he was, to use air quotes with my fingers, he was a Christian as well. So Christian cannot mean exclusively someone who's disconnected from Judaism or does not follow after Torah, because Paul was definitely a Christian, and yet Paul was a Jew, and Paul was a Torah follower. He was obedient to Torah. So we, we need to re-educate ourselves on these terminologies. That's why Mark Ananus is not using the term Christian. It's not that he doesn't like it. Is that he's trying to be accurate to put our mind back into the social setting that we're dealing with when we're reading through Paul's letters. So let's continue. So he uses the phrase Christ following community instead of Christian. But um, as he's as he mentioned in this in this commentary that we're reading, the the um, Christians of the day believe that uh, uh, that the followers of, of the first century were to respect this change of eons and to live free from Torah and the value of Jewish identities such as the weak in Romans 14, according to most interpretations, or alternatively, from the misguided teachings of those who promoted Torah and Jewish identity alongside of commitment to Christ. So, in case you got lost in that long sentence there, your average interpreter of Paul's writings. And I, I use the word average there. I'm just trying to challenge us. Please don't become openly offended when, when I keep, it seems like I'm picking on Christians all the time. I'm not. I'm not picking on Christians. I'm trying to alert us as modern Christians to the idea that there is possibly and probably some blindness uh, some 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 uh, deficiencies when it comes to the way we are reading and interpreting our Bibles, and it's it's something that we can do something about. It's a problem that can be fixed if we simply shore up our history a little bit. 
and the way we understand what's taking place from Paul's perspective to today. So what, what Nanos is simply trying to alert us to the fact is that unfortunately for religious Jews, many times your average Gentile Christian is going to read the New Testament as a free from Torah book and a, 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 um, a Paul that's writing to Christians who are telling, and he's telling them to, to break away from Judaism and to leave that old dispensation or, or eon behind because the new age is dawn and the new Testament has arrived and all of that old is old and the new is new. And, and along with the old, the, the Jewish people are out. The Christian Gentiles are in, the church is in, uh, God has replaced Israel. And so it, it, that viewpoint that I'm describing which is unfortunate and detrimental and disrespectful of Jewish lifestyle and, and Torah keeping and things like that. That that particular perspective finds its home in replacement theology, some parts of dispensational theology, and definitely in supersessionism. And that's the viewpoint that unless you're alerted to that fact, unless you're aware of that 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 bias that you may have, that you may not be aware of, unless you're aware of that it's it's going to cause you to read the text through um, uh, um, a, a, a coloring and a, a, a perspective that's again it's it's not friendly to Judaism it's not friendly and respectful of Torah keeping at all and so it's going to have to cause you to disconnect from large parts of the Bible particularly the disconnect from the Old Testament to the New Testament we're trying to avoid that as Bereans we're trying to re um, think the way we interpret Paul and his writings and the audience that he's writing to. That's why we're going through these exercises. They can be painful at times, a little embarrassing to some of us, a little um, jarring to our nerves. Uh, it's tough changing paradigms. I understand. Uh, it takes time. Just take your time. Pray about it. Work through it. You and the Holy Spirit work it out. Uh, get, sit down with a good Torah teacher and 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 uh, work it out. Um, and you'd be amazed uh, how passages can just open up to you if you if you if you allow the Holy Spirit to to um, uh, change the way you're looking at scriptures. I'm not saying give up on Jesus. Absolutely not. I'm not saying deny Messiah. Never, never. Don't even think such a thing. I'm simply saying that um, Paul wouldn't have had a problem with with uh, uh, Gentiles in his day understanding their relationship to Israel and their responsibilities to Torah. That's the challenge. So let's keep reading uh, Nanos. Secondarily, however, Paul ostensibly, that is supposedly, did not want the implications of that theological viewpoint to be taken too far. Thus, he called for his audience to adjust their social behavior to avoid offending any weak Christian-following Jews, and perhaps uh, Judaized, let me scroll up a little bit, perhaps Judaized non-Jews among themselves, and also to not think that God had rejected those Jews who did not yet share their commitment to Christ. So again, we'll keep, we'll keep working our way through this uh, this week and next week um, in case you're getting lost. Let's finish up with this final paragraph here. Uh, Nanos remarks, Those traditional ways of approaching Paul as well as Romans are easily challenged. They are. They really are. From so many angles, historically, theologically, contextually, and textually as well, there's many problems with the traditional way of looking at Paul as a law-free, 
gospel writer, as someone who's telling Gentile Christians to steer clear of Judaism, stay away from unbelieving Jews, um, steer clear of the Torah and any commitment to a law-based lifestyle and anything like that. Um, there are manifold problems with that perspective. We'll just keep working this out little by little. Don't give up on me just yet, okay? In these texts, um, Nano says, I find reason to propose that Paul and his communities, including the community he did not found but wrote to in Rome, listen up. Were they separated from Judaism? No. They were subgroups of the Jewish community's that believed Jesus represented the dawning of the awaited age. So they were Jewish communities. They were subgroups. They were within the, the scope of the synagogue family, but they were subgroups. So they were connected at some stage. The Jews in these subgroups, Nanos continues, Paul included, observed the covenantal obligations to, of Torah, for they were Jews fully inv- involved in a fully Jewish movement. Right For them, like Paul says, we're members of, a, of this sect known as the Way, which is a sect of Judaism. There was not a new religion known as Christianity that Paul was inventing in the first century. There's so many problems with that perspective. He was not inventing a new religion. He could not really. Rome wouldn't have allowed him. The emperors would have seen it as some sort of um, threat to their own uh, uh, Roman cult. The point being is Paul considered himself and the groups that he was writing to as connected to the synagogue groups in a way. They upheld that by the gift of the Holy Spirit, now made available with the arrival of the awaited age to come, they were enabled to practice their commitment to God of Israel, to the God of Israel according to the highest ideals of Torah. And this last paragraph, um, let me, uh, this is going to be a little confusing for some of you. the non-Jews who joined them, right, who joined Paul's religious groups, did not become Jews. That's true. And they were thus not under the Mosaic legislation Torah on the same terms as Jews. That last sentence about not being under the Mosaic law on the same terms as Jews, I'll have to talk about that a little bit later because I think perhaps either I'm misunderstanding Nanus or I'm either outright right, disagreeing with some of his theology there. But I don't want to get into it now. Point being is, Nanos states they were, these, these subgroups, were committed to lives of righteousness, speaking specifically of the people from the nations, the Gentiles. They were committed to lives of righteousness defined in Jewish communal terms and thus by Torah, for they met in Jewish groups and thus according to the Jewish norms for these groups and enabled by the same Spirit of God. Are you understanding those last few sentences there? Paul would have understood and expected the Gentile believers in his groups to have a basic understanding of righteousness defined by the Torah as was practiced by the Judaisms of his day, more or less. So righteousness was already spelled out in the Bible, in the Tanakh, and it was practiced at least in written form, I know there were some oral factions that came along and added a bunch of extra fences and this and that and those. And we could talk about those differences from Messianic group to Messianic group. The point, however, was that the standard of righteousness was described by God in the scriptures that Israel carried. There weren't other religious groups that Paul would have given his stamp of approval on in his day. It wasn't the Catholic Church that Paul could have said, you can practice Jewish religious uh, righteousness, or you can go over to the Catholic the cathedral down the street, and they have basically the same version of, of righteousness, albeit from a non-Jewish perspective. 
Nope, wasn't available. Paul likewise couldn't have instructed his Gentile believers to attend the First Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist or Lutheran church down the street either. He couldn't have even directed them to the SDAs, right, the Seventh-day Adventists, or the Mormons, or the Jehovah's Witnesses, God forbid. There was nowhere really for Paul to push them over to. They couldn't have even gone over to the, say, um, the, 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 um, the Islamic mosque or something to that effect. Now, if he wanted to send them overseas to, say, Asia and, say, join maybe the Confucius groups or the Buddhist groups or any other um, Eastern-type uh, religions, yeah, I suppose he could have sent them there. But would he have really done that? Come on, you guys know where I'm going with this. In the first century, and particularly within the land of Israel and the outlying diaspora, which would include um, parts of Asia, major and minor, you know, uh, uh, Italy, where Paul's writing to Rome and, and respecting areas of, of Greek and Roman um, uh, boundaries, all of that part of the world, there were essentially, from Paul's perspective, a binary aspect when it came to religion. Two, two. When I say binary, that's what I mean, just two, two, two ways of looking at the world. You either had access to God and his true righteousness through the Judaisms, or you were out. You're outside of that scope of righteousness. Everything else was pagan. Everything else was other. Everything else was dark, darkness, right? All the Roman religions and the Greek religions and the barbaric religions and, and, and you know, all of those other um, uh, uh, worldly religions and, you know, Zoroastrianism and all the other religions that were in, it, 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 was Zoroastrianism in, it, around that time, I think, though. Gnosticism and things like that. Um, all of these other things were options that Paul was steering his Gentile believers away from. What he was steering them to was the righteousness that was defined and outlined in the scriptures given to Israel. That's the only standard that Paul was going to uphold. It's the only one he quotes from uh, authoritatively is the Tanakh. He's not quoting from other authors and poets and, and Greek writers and philosophers of his day in order to give them authority. In fact, he's not even quoting from the rabbis of his day to give them authority either. He's quoting from Moses. He's quoting from the prophets. He loves Isaiah. He's quoting from, you know, these premier prophets and he's quoting from the Psalms and he's he's just pulling material out of God's breathed scriptures, God's inspired scriptures. And that's the point that we need to come back to over and over and over again. So with that, let's turn now to the uh, Shema study. We've got, uh, we're going a little bit over in our study. I'll pr try and see if I can accelerate some of this. This part will be probably a little bit shorter. So let's turn now to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. And as we learned in the liturgy, the word Shema is a reference to that passage out of Deuteronomy, those three passages that relate to the oneness of God and the, 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 the fact that God is the only God that we will serve. And in later times, it became a watchword of Jewish monotheism related to the um, ontology of God. What is God made up of? It, you know, particularly um, as the... Um, Christianities were being developed in the first century, the Shema took on this new meaning of um, defining God as over and against the incarnation of Jesus as God as well. So that's what it, that's what I mean in my study here exploring the Shema. All right, so as my tabs are opening up here, 
I'm going to accelerate this part of my study. Those of you who are with me in the live class, I'll probably only give this that should go pretty quickly because I don't need to go really uh, into great detail. Um, but we're in this part of my study. Let me drop down to the very bottom so I can pull up the little chart. We're looking at this little chart that Carm put together, as I mentioned uh, in previous studies, and we're um, now looking at a new section. We've basically finished the Holy Spirit section, and we went quite a bit on the first row there. I, I spent a lot of time kind of laying the, the framework, the groundwork. But now that I've done that and you understand kind of where I'm going in the format, I can go quickly now through the rest of these uh, week after week and hopefully it won't take as long. Maybe I can email do all of this in one week. I'm sorry, all of this in one week. We'll see. If I can get it done in the next 10 or 15 minutes, that would be a great thing. Okay, let's just go through it. So let me kind of give you an overview of where we're going to go and then we'll jump into it. We're going to look at the father called creator in Isaiah 64. And then we'll look at the son called creator in John and in Colossians. And then we'll look at the Holy Spirit given the same role of creatorship in two passages out of Job. And the, what we're doing is we're, we're allowing the Bible give us the picture of this being known as God. Meaning, if God's qualities can be witnessed by his, his own words, then the conclusions that we can come to, even though we don't have one passage that says Jesus is God or the Holy Spirit is God or something like that, although we have passages that come close, then the conclusion that we can draw through deductively as we brought, bring all the pieces together is that we have one being known as God who is nevertheless com uh, um, complex in his nature. He's complex in his unity. Um, he has aspects about him that we can't quite grasp or fully understand, but we have them demonstrated for us in these different passages. So that's where we're going. So with that, let's turn straight over to Isaiah 64. And what did I say? It's Isaiah 64, 8. Let's scroll down to the verse. It says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. So it's quite obvious from the context of this passage that Israel, or the prophet speaking of Israel, speaking on behalf of Israel, is recognizing that God is the one who made them. You are our potter, right? And those the imagery of potter and the work of the hand, right? Someone who does clay or something like that. Pottery. If we look at the uh, Hebrew, um, some nuggets that jump off the page for me are that um, God is the uh, uh, the potter and the work, the umaase, the work of your hands. This is not simply an ideal in the mind of God when we say umaase. It's rooted in the, in the Hebrew word asa. This is a very concrete verb that expresses, um, or noun, depending on which uh, uh, rendering, uh, which part of speech this is a concrete word that kind of um conveys the sense of doing or making or performing or action oriented it's 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 something that that produces results that can be that are tangible so we don't have to say that this is some kind of ethereal we are the work of your hand as if, as if this was in the mind of god right this is not just a thought of god it's not something that you couldn't see uh, walking in real life. The fact that it's a work of, the, of God's hand is the fact that his creation is real. It's tangible. That's the point I'm trying to make. So it's not, it, it moves beyond just uh, an idea or a concept or a theory in God's mind, because God could have a lot of thoughts, and we could call those thoughts, you know, things, but unless they actually 
are brought into reality, then we would never know them except unless the God expressed them on, on paper in his word. But with with man, specifically with Israel, I'm sure mankind existed in the mind of God from eons past, but there came a time in history when God took that which was inside of his mind and actually made it. He created it. His hand fashioned it and formed it. That's the point I'm trying to make. So God is the one who does these things, right? Now, I said all that to say, as we move into these other passages, we're going to see how that perhaps it's God's hands doing these things and creating these things. But as the Bible begins to unroll and unscroll it, unroll the scroll before us, we find out that the other members of the Trinity play their own part in how this thing is brought to into, into being. So for instance, now let's turn to John 1 verse 3. Speaking of Yeshua or the Word, the eternal Word, all things were made through him. Made? Wait a minute. Isn't God the one who made everything? But now John tells us that all things were made through this eternal word, which was with God and was God. And without this eternal word, nothing was made that was made. I think that would include Israel that we read about in Isaiah just earlier. In fact, John goes on to explain that um, uh, this word later on, uh, if we get down, scroll down to, um, uh, let's see, where is it? Uh, maybe it's in a different passage I'm thinking about. But let's just stick with verse 3 for now so I don't go off track and trace a rabbit trail. All things were made through him. This word which was with God and was God, John tells us later on down, in fact, I do have to drop down anyway. With this word, um, I'm sorry, in verse 10 it says, he was in the world and the world was made through him. Okay, that was the thought I was thinking of earlier. The same word, uh, the, speaking of the world, was made through him. But then it, it's this uh, word uh, 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 in verse 14, this word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we're moving from this eternal word, which was eternal with God, to this incarnation among men. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it's in verse um, uh, uh, it's in verse 14 that we know that this is Yeshua, the Messiah, the one who came and dwelt with us, right? So going back up to verse 3, the only point I'm trying to bring up in this part of our study is that Isaiah told us that, speaking of Israel, that God made them. God was the potter, and they are the clay. But John tells us that Yeshua made everything. And without Yeshua, without this word made flesh, this eternal word, nothing was made that was made. Does that mean that maybe it was made in the mind of God, but then the, the word made it? No, 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 no. That's the point I was trying to bring up in bringing up the Hebrew. God actually didn't just think it and then the word made it. Like some might say, okay, the mind of God conceived it and then the, the hand of God fashioned it, but was all, all really still God. No, that doesn't, it doesn't work that way. In the Hebrew, God made. It didn't just exist in his mind. It, it, it was actually fashioned. So in John 1... Uh, I brought up some Hebrew. Maybe I was going to look at something uh, to show that uh, uh, 
the Greek word again came into being is similar to the Hebrew that I was looking at earlier. Uh, that this is something that was brought into being. It came into being. It's it wasn't just it didn't just exist in the mind of God. The Israel, you know, God didn't just think about creating man and then boom, he cre- the Jesus created them. Right? It wasn't there wasn't this disconnect there. God is the creator. God is the one who brought everything into being again until. Um, then let's look at the next passage um, in this list. Um, of son being called God in Colossians. We've looked at this in the past as well. Colossians, what did I say? Colossians 2.9. Um, and I got the wrong chapter pulled up. Sorry about that. Colossians 2.9. Wow, I had the wrong passage pulled up all along. No problem. Uh, wait a minute. That's not the one I want. Oh, I'm sorry. Colossians 1.15. I'm just looking at the wrong table. I did have the right passage. Let's go back to that. Sorry about that. We talked about Colossians 1 a few weeks back. No, maybe it was even a few months ago. All right, so in Colossians 1.15, we're going a little long here, so I apologize. Colossians 1.15, let's drop down to that, and I'll just make my point really clear. This is too easy for us to see this, It's and it's right in front of us if we would just stop and read the Bible. Speaking of Yeshua, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, this phrase, firstborn of all creation, doesn't mean that he's the firstborn to be created. And the proof is in the very next verse. It says in verse 16, for by him all things were created. So he can't be the first thing that was created if all things were created by him. Make sense? In fact, the last part of the passage says all things were created through him. So he didn't create himself, meaning he's uncreated. Thus, firstborn of all creation does not mean he's the first thing to be created. I've heard some people say, well, Jesus is the firstborn of all of God's creation. He was the first thing. He's the first creature that was created by God. This is the heretical view of the Unitarians. This is the heretical view of the, of the Arians. This is the heretical view of, um, of, of, of um, many views that uh, disagree with the fact that God is the only one and only creator and that Yeshua is the very image of of the invisible God, and, and Yeshua shares the very nature with God. But the point for our uh, study tonight is that this Yeshua, this Messiah, is the one that by him all things were created, and all things were created through him. He is before all things, and in, in him all things hold together. He's before all things? Is he before God himself? Well, no, but the only way that's possible is because he is very God, so he doesn't have to compete with himself, right? He is before all things because he, in very nature of being God, Yeshua doesn't have subservient to God when it comes to identity. Um, They're one and the same uh, being. Different persons, but same being. All right, so again, I was going to look at some of the Greek, uh, but I don't think I need to at this point in time. I don't think uh, we've got time to look at all those nuggets. Uh, there's nothing really in the Greek that you couldn't gather from the um, uh, 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 the English anyway, so we'll forego that. And then uh, moving along in this series, we return to two passages out of the book of Job, and I'm concluding with these sets, is that the, the Karm chart shows us that Job recorded that the Spirit had this creatorship relationship or creatorship title attributed to him if depending on how you look at the verse this one's a little um what in my opinion a little maybe weaker argument but we'll just pull it in just because karm did job 33 and which verse do we want uh let's look at 33 4 first um job says in the esv version the spirit of god has made me and the breath of the almighty gives me life now the spirit of god made me 
let's turn to the Hebrew and see what the, this word made means. Um, the Spirit of God, the Spirit is Ruach. God is the word El, as in the shortened form of Elohim, so El, and has made me. Asatni. And this word Asatni, strong number 6213, is the same word rooted as this one. Let me pull up the Hebrew for you one more time so you guys can see this. 4639 here, right? Ma'ase, 4639. Now let's go over to Job 334. I think it's related to the same word. I'm pretty sure. I could be wrong here. Um, asa is when I click on it, 6213. Asa. And when I click on the Strong's number for this one, Maase, which is from, when I click on it, 6213. Asa. So I wasn't wrong. Nice to know my Hebrew still works for some verses. So the point I'm trying to make is that this uh, word is a very, like I said, a very uh, generic word in Hebrew that refers to a work, a deed, something that's concrete, an accomplishment, an achievement, an action, an activity. Right? It's a very practical word. It's not mysterious or eth ethical. It's, it's not something that only exists in ideal or in the mind or, or metaphysical or something to that effect. The point is, when Job says the Spirit of God made me, he's using similar verbiage that's found throughout the Tanakh that speaks of God making things. God making things. Now, um, how is it that the Spirit made Job? Well, I mean, again, we can look at different um, uh, versions. Job 33, 4 in the um, Greek, the, the, the divine spirit, the pneuma theon to poiesan, made me, poiesan, poiesan me, actually. Uh, the spirit made me, even in the Greek, which is the Septuagint version, we're, we're using the same uh, verb. The Spirit is giving creatorship to Job's, what Job's big same. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of Almighty gives me life. Well, how is it that the Spirit made Job? Doesn't Job know that God created all things? Or wait a minute, wait a minute. Doesn't Job know that the Word, which was, which was going to be made flesh, doesn't Job know that the eternal Word, which with God, is actually the creator of all things, like John told him, is going to tell us? Which one of these passages is right is the point we're trying to challenge ourselves with. Isaiah tells us that God created, that God made things using the, Greek, the Hebrew word asa. But um, Job tells us that the Spirit made using the same root Greek, I'm sorry, same root um, uh, Hebrew word asa, that the Spirit made him. What do you mean the Spirit of God? Maybe he means the, 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 the Spirit which is God, right? Well, we could, we've talked about this before. God's Spirit is is a separate person. The Spirit of God and God's Spirit are not exactly the same thing at all times, and yet they are the same. God is a Spirit, and the Spirit of God is God's Spirit, and yet the Holy Spirit is a separate person who does the bidding and will of God, who is also a Spirit. Okay, that can be a little challenging and confusing to us, I know. But let's keep reading through Job real quick. Uh, there's another passage that uh, Karim brought up, and it's Job 26.13. And this time, I don't need to look at the whole chapter. I just want to look at all these different versions. This one's a little weaker. Um, Job says, by his breath, uh, speaking of God, by his breath, the skies became fair. What? Where's the creatorship there? Well, let's keep reading some of the different versions. In LT, his spirit made the heavens. Ah, there we go. It's the translation. His spirit made the heavens. 
Okay, but wait a minute. The other versions say, by his wind the heavens were made. Okay, I can see made there. By his breath the skies were cleared. Eh? NASB, by his breath the heavens are cleared. By his spirit he adorned the heavens. What gives? Okay, the reason why I'm bringing up all these different versions is because... I've got the Hebrew pulled up for us. It's because this way, this word uh, made in some versions is actually not the same Greek a Hebrew word asa, that we looked at earlier in Isaiah and earlier in Job. When he says, by his spirit the heavens were made, it's the word um, shifra. And this word is a hapax legomenon. What does that mean? It means it only shows up once in the whole Bible. And so when I click on the, the, the Strong's reference to find out where else it's fine, it shows up, Wow, it only shows up once. Yeah, Strong's a Hebrew word, uh, 80 to 35, it shows up one time. So it's sometimes difficult to determine a, the meaning of a word when you don't have other passages that you can bounce off of to get a kind of a scope of the range. What's the point is we could translate it as made, but it's better translated as um, uh, brought into clearness or fairness or clearness of sky, like the clouds cleared away. Like, you know, that's what I mean, like... Um, like you might clear off the clutter from a desk. You would clear it off or beautify it, um, make it look fair, uh, garnish it or something. So going back to those, all those different uh, translations, NIV, NLT, ESV, uh, NASB, KJV, we can see the different range that they're trying to give to this Hebrew word. They're trying to explain that the Spirit of God beautifies the sky. doesn't necessarily make the sky as in create it is the point I'm trying to make. So if you only went with say um maybe which version uh maybe either the ESV or um something like that then you might get the uh uh, uh you might get the impression that that the spirit of God is making the heavens here. But that's not really what Job is talking about. I believe he's just simply talking about God's spirit is one who's beautifying. He's clearing the sky. He's blowing away the clouds. If you want to follow the metaphor of wind and breath and spirit and put them all together. By his breath, the skies became fair. His spirit made the heavens beautiful. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. By his breath, the skies were cleared. By his breath, the heavens are cleared. By his spirit, he adorns the heavens. So going back to, in your conclusion, um, Karm brings this passage in saying that the Holy Spirit is creator. And maybe he's maybe the, the writer to the book is talking about how that this word is sometimes translated as made or something like that. Um, uh, you know, the, the heavens were made fair. I don't think it's the word made. It's not the same connotation. So that's really what we're trying to say. All right, so I think... We've done a pretty good job. We went a little bit over. We did a pretty good job and just looked at this whole table. And I don't need to look at this row next week. We can jump now into resurrects and talk about how the Father is the one who resurrects. The Son is the one who resurrects. The Holy Spirit is the one who resurrects. We can look at that next week and we don't have to spend all the time on Creator. We spent a lot of time on that when we looked at John way up here earlier anyway. So go back and listen to previous uh, recordings or watch previous videos. All right. With that, it's about... Oh, wow, it's an hour and 26 minutes, according to my little timer on my desk here. We went over, as we do sometimes. Uh, let's close in prayer. Those of you with me in the live class, if you still have got uh, time and you've got questions, we can continue to entertain those. Uh, but for those of you in my YouTube crowd and my iTunes crowd, uh, let's draw the study to a close with my prayer, okay? Abba, I bless your name. Thank you for studying. Uh, thank you for bringing us into a place where we can study together and where we can appreciate what we're studying. Help us, Holy Spirit, to comprehend the, the material. There's a lot here to chew on, and we're not going to 
understand it with one setting. And so for that reason, Lord, continue to give us the strength to press in, to, uh, uh, to press through and to research and to, to, to just keep um, um, availing ourselves of your words and of your truths and putting them in our hearts so that we can understand them a little bit better. Maybe we won't understand it completely until you come and give us that understanding. But in the meantime, we have a responsibility and the ability to uh, uh, study them out and to put them into practice. Thank you that you've given us that measure, and we will be careful to continue to praise you and to put them into practice. B'Shem Yeshua, Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.